This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well. Conversation with creative people who have one heck of a lot to say. I am thrilled to welcome Mark Seal, an extraordinary writer for Vanity Fair magazine, with many credits, including the books Wildflower and The Man in the Rockefeller Suit, and his latest, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, which tells the true story of the making of The Godfather, with a story about the film's production as dramatic, chaotic, and operatic as the movie itself. To quote Don Corleone, uh, it's an offer you can't refuse. You need to buy this book. You need to read it. It is a movie lover's delight. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. By the gentleman who unveils it all, Mark Seal, who joins us now on Mike. I just absolutely love the book. I love the title. We'll talk about it, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli. But Mark, the, the opening stanzas, you're talking about being in bed with Robert Evans, which is pretty interesting. That should get the audience to perk up a little bit. How did you wind up in bed with this guy? Well, Paramount in uh, those years in the late 60s was on the brink of collapse. Uh, they had had one hit uh, when Robert Evans came on board as the head of production, and that was Love Story. And while uh, Love Story was a, uh, a reprieve, as I wrote, it wasn't a rescue. And so they needed a, a hit, a monster hit. And that's what the most unlikely of all movies, a movie that almost didn't get made, a movie that had um, danger and brought with the firings, possible firings and disaster around every corner uh, became the Godfather. And uh, so how I met Robert Evans, yeah. I was uh, in 2008, I was working on a story for Vanity Fair magazine, which I had so been blessed with uh, being assigned to. And that was the making of the movie, The Godfather. So, of course, my first call was to Robert Evans, um, the enigmatic uh, producer uh, of uh, who had bet his whole career on The Godfather. And I arrived at his home in Beverly Hills, this storied home called Woodland, uh, which I had read about in his book, in his autobiography, The Kid Stays in the Picture. And Evans was a master at staging and also making arri arrivals. And so he uh, had everything ready for me. The, cop the uh, dining room table was covered with uh, pictures and clippings, and he had his <laughs> butler meet me at the door. And then Evans makes this almost grand entrance, you know. He had his, his teeth were like white, his skin was tanned, his hair was slicked back. He stared at me through rose-colored glasses. <laughs> And he said, let's go to bed. And I went, what? <laughs> and he explained that he uh, that his screening room had, bur had burned down and he and his friend friends watched movies in bed and we were going to watch parts of The Godfather. I love it. I love it. And by the way, people can tell from your delightful accent that you hail from the South. And I heard you on other interviews talk about your experience seeing The Godfather. You and I are close to the same age. So you see it when it comes out. I see it when it comes out. We're just young kids, teenagers or whatever, approaching college. And it's quite the uh, cinematic experience for all of us. Oh, it was a life-changing event for me. So I was a freshman in college, you know, and I went home to see my mom in Memphis, Tennessee. 
And I walked into that theater to see The Godfather as a kid, and I walked out three hours later as an adult, and I had never seen a world like that before, and I just couldn't get out of, get it out of my head. I'm so glad you've done not only the story but in the magazine, but this amazing book, and, and I want to get into it. First of all, Mario Puzo, I always had the impression of him being an austere, stately gentleman, an Italian count or something. <laughs> and then I read about him in your book. And what a picture he uh, you paint of him as a uh, a jolly kind of, well, not jolly all the time, but a frustrated writer, overweight, family man, just everything I didn't think he'd be. <laughs> he's fascinating as, as anybody in the story, isn't he? Yeah, he's the true hero of The Godfather. You can't help but fall in love with Mario Puzo. He was worked his whole life. Uh, to become a writer. Uh, and when he did, he was met with failure. He had published two books that were critically well-received, but commercially uh, not. He got $3,500 advance for the first one, 3000 for the second. He wanted to quit writing altogether. Um, but then he, uh, he was a Pulp Fiction writer for all of these men's magazines. Um, in, in New York, and he learned how to create worlds out of the thinnest of threads. Mm. And he went to see his publisher or, or several publishers for a new book, and they just said, oh, no, he was turned down at every turn. And they said, if only that last book of yours, because the last book um, had featured a mafia character, had a little more of that mafia stuff in it, maybe it would be a seller. Uh, or maybe we'd be interested. And so he went home and in his, in his basement with the sound of his five kids in the basement beside a pool table, uh, he created the Corleone family out of thin air. That's the, I have another story I want to tell you about Mario. Please, 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 don't stop, please. Well, the great story about Mario is that he was... Um, you know, struggling. He was a he was a gambler. You know, he was in the in hot to the bookies, and he was uh, you know he couldn't keep pace. He had he had to borrow money right and left. Uh, and one night he had a severe gallbladder attack, and he called a taxi. Even though he was broke, he always rode in taxis. But this night he called a taxi, and he directed them to take him to the VA hospital in New York City. And as soon as he got to the hospital, uh, the, the gallbladder attack worsened and he fell out of the taxi and into a gutter and laying uh, face up in that gutter, he made a vow. He goes, here I am, a published author and I'm dying like a dog. <laughs> and he said, at that point, I decided I will become rich and famous. And that he did. And it's remarkable. Uh, the book, I remember actually reading it when I was a young guy, and uh, it was a sensation in terms of publishing. It it broke all kinds of records. Something that movie studios, you would assume, would want to buy up right away because it was such a hit. What exactly was going on in the late 60s with the book and movie companies? Well, Paramount, um, you know, they didn't didn't want to make the movie distribution. Evans said, didn't want to make the movie, but Evans were not on making the movie. It's in the beginning either. Um, because mob movies, the, the common knowledge that back then went, didn't play, uh, Paramount had produced, uh, the brotherhood right. starring Kirk, Kirk Douglas. Douglas. Right. And while it wasn't that badly re reviewed, it was not, didn't do well at the, at the box office. And so they didn't want to make the Godfather, 
But one thing happened, Mario Puzo's book kept shooting up the bestseller list. So they had to make it because uh, Burt Lancaster wanted to buy the book from Paramount and produce it himself and star in it. Danny Thomas, who had a lot of money back then, because he was the producer of all these sitcoms that were right, hit, right. wanted to buy the project from Paramount. And you know what competition does in the in Hollywood, you know, it makes people want to do it even more. So they were resigned to do The Godfather. And once they got into production, they wanted to do it cheap. They wanted to do it fast. They wanted to do it uh, as a period, as a um, contemporary story. They wanted to do it in a city like Kansas City or St. Louis because New York was the most expensive place to film a movie. But then they hired Francis Ford Coppola, who insisted on doing everything the way that he envisioned it. And, and he fought tooth and nail to do it. It's a remarkable story. We'll get to that. You mentioned sitcoms. So we bring in another fascinating guy uh, named Al Ruddy, who was instrumental in one of the biggest sitcoms of the 60s, Hogan's Heroes. But <sighs> he is an unlikely guy to sort of helm a production to be the main producer. How does he end up being the producer of The Godfather? Along with well, that, that's course. one of the more amazing stories in the <laughs> book. You know, Al Ruddy is now in his 90s, but he remembers everything uh, like it was yesterday. And he told me all these amazing stories about how he um, got the job as the as the producer of The Godfather. He had uh, created Hogan's Heroes out of thin air with a with a partner, writing partner, uh, in an office, and they it became a huge hit, much to their surprise. And he got an office on the lot at Paramount. And uh, one day uh, he was summoned to Robert Evans' office. And they said, well, how would you like to produce The Godfather? He goes, oh, my God, I love that book, even though he hadn't read it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, um, and then from that point on, it just becomes a roller coaster. As we're discussing the creation of the film, the production elements, we'll get into casting. You've got a whole other side to this, and that's the reaction of the Italian-American community and one of the most interesting people, I'll just use that term in quotes, is Joe Colombo, a mafia don who heads up the uh, anti-discrimination group that is fighting at first the movie. Briefly, what happened here? Yeah, yeah so Joe Colombo was the, head, the founder and the head of the Italian-American Civil Rights League, and they were fighting to stamp out the stereotyping of uh, Italian-Americans in popular culture. And pretty soon The Godfather uh, became, uh, you know, an example of something that that uh, that they felt needed to be stopped. And Al Ruddy uh, met with the Colombo and uh, his associates and said, let me let me show you the script. It's not going to be it's not going to be this. It's not going to be that. It's going to be. you know, it's going to be the Godfather, and you can you can look at the script, and if there's anything that you find offensive, we can deal with it. And so they looked at the script, but uh, Ruddy said nobody read the script. They passed it between them to themselves, and just says, "Ah, do we trust this guy?" And they said, and Ruddy said, uh, "They said yes," and they said they wanted one thing, and that was that the word mafia not be used in the film, and it was only used in one place, and that was when Tom Hagen went to see. Uh, uh, Jack Waltz in yeah. the movie studio, he used the term mafia. He already said, okay, we're taking that word out. And the, the uh, movie was on in New York City. Locations that had been closed were now open. And, uh, you know, some of the men that were supposedly connected 
uh, wanted parts in the film. That's the funniest thing. Uh, and we'll talk again about the cast in a minute, but that's so cool to think that the mob guys were as excited about being in the movie. At this point, we might as well get to the, the meat, which is the casting, because everyone wants to know about Brando. And the assumption is today, oh, my God, Marlon Brando. He wasn't the oh, my God, Marlon Brando at that point in his career uh, and wasn't the first choice, as you point out. No, they wanted, you know, Ernest Borgnine, uh, who else? Uh um, so many other actors. Well, you uh, mentioned Lancaster, right? Danny Thomas. Oh, my God. Can you imagine yeah, that? Yeah, Danny Thomas. Um, but Marlon Brando at uh, 47 was considered washed up. A has-been. His last movies had been bombs at the box office. He was considered temperamental. Uh, and Paramount didn't want him. Um, but... Francis Coppola and Mario Puzo actually really wanted him. Puzo had written a letter to Brando, and uh, this is right after the, he had finished the book before he even started the screenplay with Coppola. And he wrote the, his address at the top of the letter. It said, North Carolina Fat Farm. <laughs> and um, he was in North Carolina trying to lose weight, oh, as yeah. he did often. And he wrote, Dear Mr. Brando, I've written a book uh, that has had some, met with some success, The Godfather, called The Godfather. And you're the only actor, in my opinion, that could play The Godfather with the quiet intensity that it deserves. Brando read that letter. He said, I'm not paying a, playing a mafia, Don. Mm. He did not want the part. Uh, then he heard Lawrence Olivier was being considered. He goes, Lawrence Olivier, he can't play a mafia, Don. <laughs> And so then suddenly uh, he was interested. There's that competition factor again. It makes a big uh, difference. And interesting, you talk about Brando and the book. Uh, he wasn't an avid reader, at least to himself, except for cue cards. He would often need big, right. fat cue cards. Uh, what intrigued him, I think, what intrigued a lot of people at the time was a different take. Uh, this was really, as Mario might have said and others in Francis, a family story, a story about family as much as it was about the mob. That's right. That was the genius of, of, of Mario Puzo. He created a family. You know, he was from a major, a big um, Italian-American family. They grew up in Hell's Kitchen. He said he never met a true, honest-to-God gangster in his life. But, you know, if you research uh, his past, as I did, and everything he'd written, and he was surrounded by these men uh, all of his life. Uh, there's a great story in the book that was in, a, in an interview he gave uh, where, you know, one day the door of his mother's apartment opened and a man threw in a, a blanket full of guns. And the guy said, hold these for me a minute. <laughs> and the guy became like, he was like the godfather of, uh, for, for a time of the fam of this, uh, of this area. And then he vanished from sight. So Mario knew the, these people, he knew this world, but his great talent was, that he that he forged in writing these for these men's pulp magazines was creating worlds that were even bigger than than fact that were that where the fantasy exceeded the the fact where he created a myth and you can see that in the progression of his writing uh, from these magazine stories especially to the godfather where he just Everything you see in that movie, you can see in the book in some fashion, although it's a little, it's different in so many time, ways in the movie. But Coppola took that book and turned it into the script along with 
the help of Mario Puzo as co-writer. Indeed, indeed. And we talk about casting, and, and there's so many aspects. There's Talia Shire, the director's sister, who, by the way, is perfect as Connie. But the key casting uh, issue is Michael, and that's uh, Al Pacino. Now, today we think of Al Pacino as a superstar. He was an unknown, really, back then. And uh, yeah. he. a lot of folks fought against him being cast. What are you doing with this unknown? Well, yeah, because Pacino was a stage actor. He'd been in a, a stage play called uh, Does a Tiger Wear a Necktie? He was a, he was a great state Broadway and off-Broadway stage actor, but nobody knew. He had not done a, been seen on screen, screen. He had shot The Panic in Needle Park, but it wasn't out yet. And and everybody said, who, who is this guy? I mean, Evans had not really heard of him. He thought he was too short. And uh, he, they wanted Robert Redford. Um, somebody's even said they wanted Elvis Presley. I haven't heard that before, uh, but somebody said it's hard to believe. So, but uh, Ryan O'Neill was considered. Uh, if you see Sue Mingers in the old sixty minutes story uh, where she's being interviewed, uh, Evan says every day she uh, Sue Mingers would call and says Ryan O'Neill for the Godfather. Ryan O'Neill for the Godfather. Wow. Well. Uh, that they wanted Ryan O'Neill because he'd been a hidden love story. But who was Al Pacino? He was nobody. And even Pacino was, had doubts if he could pull this off. The, know, the, yeah, the remarkable thing as a movie lover and as a fan of this movie, I've seen it so many times and I love it, is that everything had to happen the right way for this to become a universal, not not capital U, a universal classic forever. It, it looks like the film was made yesterday or in 1945. It, 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 it just transcends time in a sense. Uh, and you mentioned they wanted to do it on the cheap as a contemporary project. That would have ruined it. It would have been 1972 and, oh, my God, bell bottoms. Who needs that? I mean, this this movie works on all levels. It works exactly right because of that, because of the time period. It is as fresh today as it was in 1972 when it came out because it was shot in the period of the 40s as Mario Puzo's book was. And also because it's not just about gangsters, but it's about gangsters as family men, as exemplified by the line that uh, Richard Castellano ad-libs, uh, you know, leave the gun, take the cannoli. <laughs> he's talking about guns, but more, more, than, more than that, he's talking about cannoli. He's talking about the wife, the kids, the uncles, the aunts, the food, always the food. Yeah. The food is always there in The Godfather. Well, Most of all, he's talking about the family. First of all, love Castellano. The fact that his name is Castellano, I know there's some question of whether or not he's related to the Castellanos, but we'll leave that alone. Brilliant, brilliant character actor, lovers and other strangers before The Godfather. And and the fact that he ad-libbed that line, and that scene is particularly awesome because he's He's not in the scene, uh, the actual murder. He's over uh, relieving himself on the side of the road. It's shot so beautifully, but uh, what a great ad lib. Might be the greatest ad lib of all time. Yes, and I was able to interview uh, Johnny Martino, who, of course, plays Poligato, who slumped over the wheel. And he's he was so great. He, he, he told me the story of, you know, how, you know, Coppola said, okay, Johnny... Uh, uh, you know, we're going to blast three shots right by your head. And all of a sudden, a marksman gets, gets in the back seat. He goes, what? He goes, you know, who is this guy? And, all this, and it just worked like clockwork, that scene. You know, they drove out to a barren stretch of road. I believe it was in New Jersey. 
and the Statue of Liberty is in the distance. But what's amazing about that shot is the Statue of Liberty isn't facing them, but the Statue of Liberty has its back to the scene mm. as if it's like turning its back on the whole affair. You know, the three shots go off. Johnny Martino is Polly slumps over the wheel. And then Richard Castellano, uh, you know, finishes his business and walks over to the car and he tells Rocco, that's when he says, leave the gun and leave the gun was in the script. It wasn't in the book. Leave the gun, he says. And then he completely ad libs because he remembers what his wife, <laughs> who was his real life wife. It was Richard Castellano's real life wife, tells him from the stoop, don't forget the cannoli. <laughs> and so that's why he adds and take the cannoli. It's the perfect title for your book, which is subtitled The Epic story of the making of The Godfather. We're talking with Mark Seal, a great, great read, a fascinating from beginning to end. There are so many things, so I'll jump around a little bit with your indulgence. We mentioned Michael. A rumor floated around for a while that Rod Steiger, he didn't want to play The Godfather. He wanted to play Michael. Did you substantiate that or can you? Yeah, that was in the book. That was, uh, let's see who said that. I can't remember exactly, but uh, it was, uh, Sue. oh, that's right. Mario Puzo wrote that. He said that Sue Minger is the agent uh, of the day. Um, the legendary Sue Mingers called him one day and wanted to have lunch. And he goes, lunch? You know, he didn't do lunch. He was not a Hollywood guy. He goes, so he goes, but let's talk. And, and she said, Rod Steiger, I want to talk to you about Rod, my client, Rod Steiger, as Michael. And he goes, Rod Steiger is way too old to play Michael. But that was the kind of things that were coming out of the woodwork once they announced that this movie was being made because the book was such a hit, you know, it was, everybody was reading that book. It was like, you know, John Grisham of today or Dan Brown when yeah. the Vinci code came out, you know, everybody was yeah. reading this book. And when they announced they were going to cast unknowns, primarily Italian Americans in some of the roles, you know, people were ready to, uh, you know, to line up to try to get into this film. Mark, let's talk a little bit about the angst suffered primarily by the director and the fighting and the infighting and the control that Robert Evans wanted to take. He basically tried to usurp a lot of what Francis Ford Coppola did. I mean, that's a pretty fascinating part of the story. Well, you know, everybody had their own opinions on how this movie should be made, but Francis Coppola saw it from the start. He saw the cast. He called him up to uh, San Francisco on the on the uh, kind of secret almost where he did screen tests of Al Pacino, James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Talia Shire. Uh, oh, and Diane Keaton too. Mm. I don't think Talia was there. It was Diane Keaton. So uh, he did those tests, uh, as Khan would say, for the price of four corned beef sandwiches. <laughs> and uh, he shipped the screen test to Paramount. And they said, who are these people? We don't know any of them, you know, and they put, they, put them in they they were known but they were not stars by any stretch of the imagination so uh paramount commenced to uh do a intensive casting uh screen testing process which cost the studio 400 and something thousand dollars only to end up with a cast that coppola envisioned from the start and so uh you know evans and coppola you know as one of them said i guess it was uh Evans, we didn't agree on anything. And, uh, but Coppola, as you can see in the early videos of him with his associate, George Lucas, 
was very uh, energetic and determined and believed in himself and his work. And he fought tooth and nail for every aspect of that mm. film. And because of his uh, determination to do it the way that he envisioned it, it became the uh, masterpiece that it became. And I think somewhere you quote him as saying, uh, the Godfather shoot might have been even more intrepid than the Apocalypse Now shoot, which is famous for having uh, nature, everything else against him. That's right. And listen, I want to say one thing about Robert Evans, too. To his credit, The Godfather would not have been made without Robert Evans because he's the one who said, uh, as uh, Sam Wasson wrote in the New York Times, he's the one who said, yes, he greenlit the movie. And not only that, as you heard Francis Coppola say at the Oscars this year, he wanted to, you know, thank Robert Evans for what he did. So Robert Evans's passion was equally, yeah. uh, you know, intense. And um, and his determination, he said he bet everything and lost. You know, it was it was both. You know, the greatest thing he ever did, but it was also he lost his he, he lost a lot of his personal life because of it. Well, he lost uh, Ali McGraw for one thing, right? Right. Be- yeah. yeah, because he <laughs> he sent her down to do the getaway, he said, down with uh, Steve McQueen in Texas. And we know what happened after that. And uh, so he said it was, you know, it was both a blessing and a curse. Indeed couple of other things. Uh, Johnny Fontaine, the character played by Al Martino, and this is very controversial because he was in the book and in the movie. Of course, the storyline uh, reflects the life and times of Frank Sinatra in the 30s and 40s and in the 50s when Sinatra gets the big movie. And there was some blowback from the Sinatra crowd when that movie uh, was being filmed, wasn't there? Yeah. So Frank Sinatra reportedly did not, you know, like his portrayal in the book. I mean, and rightfully so. I mean, if you read the book, the character of Johnny Fontaine, I won't even go into it, but it all, you know, close to the near, after the wedding, you can see Johnny Fontaine and he's quite down on his luck. And, you know, it's not a real, I mean, he calls him Johnny Fontaine, but in Puzo's notes, you can see where he says, you know, mentions Frank Sinatra quite a bit while writing the screenplay anyway. So, you know, Sinatra, uh, didn't like this portrayal reportedly. And in Chasen's one night, according to Al Ruddy, uh, 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 Mario Puzo approached uh, Sinatra's table, not by his own accord, because uh, Mario Puzo wanted to keep his distance because he knew, had heard the word that, you know, Sinatra wasn't a huge fan of the movie that was being made. And, uh, but he was brought over to the table by a show business impresario there one night. He says, you got to meet Frank, you know, and (laughs) he brought him to the table and fireworks uh, reportedly ensued at that point. And, uh, you know, they almost came to blows over this. And, uh, but anyway, so Sinatra wasn't a big fan uh, of of the book, obviously. And, um, but later on, um, apparently he, he was also interested in playing the Godfather couple of notes about the production elements, um, and then we'll let you go. First of all, the opening scene and the closing scene are two of the most subtle and most powerful scenes. The Bonacera scene where you open with this this ordinary guy who wasn't an ordinary guy, the actor, I guess, uh, wasn't a, uh, an experienced actor who played the, the mortician. And then the closing scene with the door closing in Kay's face, fabulous ideas. Did he have to fight for those ideas, particularly the opening as well? The opening, Coppola. you know, the opening was Coppola, Coppola's because he saw, so that line, I believe in America, 
was in Puzo's book, but it didn't come till it was in the early chapters, but it didn't start the book. Uh, but but Coppola was able to see that line for what it is. It was sheer perfection. It mm. just embodies everything about the immigrant experience, about why some of these men and women turned to crime, the family to follow, and the wedding scene that comes next. You know, it's this amazing, abiding belief in America. And um, so that was just classic. And to have that Undertaker's face, you know, come out of the darkness that was, um, uh, you know, so pervasive in the movie uh, was just majestic. And then from that point on, it just starts to roll, you know. And you're right, the ending scene, too, with the door closing. I mean, you couldn't mm. get more perfect than that. Well, in closing, iconic things are, intrigue me. Pop culture is certainly changing ever. But it's 50 years and the movie still holds up. People are still putting cotton in their cheeks and doing Godfather impressions. I mean, (laughs) none of this was expected. And the impact of it, uh, I'm sure, on the actors who are still alive must be pretty, pretty awesome when it's 50 years later and people are still considering one of the greatest films of all time. Yeah, look at this. I mean, this uh, last year, uh, what? No, this this year is the 50th anniversary back in March. So I a few a few months out. So yeah, 50 years. Look at look at all the things that happened this year to uh, celebrate them. I mean, the new print uh, for the 50th anniversary, and it just remains a, such a classic. And it's, uh, I, you know, I'm just so, uh, every time I see it, I'm just so uh, uh, caught up in it once again, just as I was the first time. Well, if people want to really catch up and have a terrific ride. They should read Leave the Gun, Take the Canola. You learn about Luca Brazzi. You learn about Alateri, all these guys who had stories beyond the movies. It's, it's just phenomenal. So well written. And Thank you. Uh, are you. Are you thinking of another project of similar themes? Anything working for you right now? You know, I'm, I'm hoping to. I haven't found a, a, a great story to turn into a book in Hollywood yet again, but I hope so. I'm praying. Well, you know, I'm looking and praying and hoping that something great will come up. Well, if it does, and when it does, we got the guy who's going to write it, Mark Seal. Thank you so much. It was a delight. And uh, I know a lot of our fans are going to be reading this book and loving it. Thank you so much for having me. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. I love the book, The Making of the Godfather. You will learn so much and be entertained every step of the way. Thank you again to Mark Seal for joining us. And thank you to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for helping us to publish this and many other podcasts. We record everything and produce everything at Chart Productions in Boston. And you can find out more at chartproductions.com or at my website, jordanrich.com. Oh, and thanks so much for subscribing and downloading. And those ratings and reviews mean a lot, too. Until next time, this is JR saying be well so you can do good. Take care.